1: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying Lord. turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 verses 39 through 56. It's Luke 1, 39 through 56. It's found on page 856 in your pew Bible In those days as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray
2: together. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your Word. We thank you for... Raising up Luke to write this glorious gospel and the second half of this work, Acts itself, the work of the church. We thank you, Lord, that what we see beginning here and the announcement to Zechariah that he would have a child, he and Elizabeth, and then the announcement to Mary, and then the two ladies getting together here and rejoicing over what. Is happening that this would finally result in the gospel being spread throughout the Mediterranean basin. And we'd find Paul at the end of this part of the story proclaiming the gospel in Rome itself. Oh Lord, we we praise you. We praise you that we ourselves are worshiping this Lord Jesus, that we ourselves have the rich, wonderful benefits now and forever of this child who was announced, and over whom they rejoiced so greatly. Lord, may we rejoice. May we enjoy the restoration that He brings. And may we look forward in great hope to that final restoration of all things in Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is a great passage as really the whole Scripture is addressed to the helpless and the humble. A lot of people are helpless, but we must be humble in our helplessness. And humility and helplessness means that we entrust ourselves to a glorious God, that we believe in His goodness and we believe in His salvation. We believe in all that He will do for us. And so, as we look at this passage I want to look at the the helpless and humble because it's so much about that. As she says in verse 48, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Who am I that this should happen? Elizabeth is the same way. And so we are encouraged, though we are helpless and humble, to embrace gladly the salvation of God. And two basic things that... We, and many things we could draw from this passage, but one is the joy of the humble and the help the helpless and humble and Lord, and, and also then the restoration of the helpless and humble so this passage speaks to us of the great joy that we though we are helpless, that we can have in him, and then the restoration that we have in him uh, the joy uh, it 's interesting because in the first verses, uh, the first verse, we get immediate action. Mary has had the announcement in the passage right before this. And by the way, we're not skipping verses 26 through uh, 38 because I don't like that section. But we dealt with that section a couple of years ago. So we're kind of in a cleanup operation, you know, hitting the areas where we didn't a couple of years ago. So we have the announcement to Zechariah in the first uh, part of the chapter that we dealt with last week. And then the announcement to Mary in verses 26 and following that she would have a child. And now we pick it up with Mary immediately arising and with haste going to the hill country to a town in Judah. This is probably a four day trip, 70 miles. And Luke treats it in the, in the briefest possible way to say she took off and immediately we've gone 70 miles in four days. And then there's a halt. You think it's going to carry forward in action after action. And the way he describes the action underscores the fact that there is this pause. In fact, it's almost like uh, something burst upon the scene in that as she's about to greet uh, Elizabeth and does greet her. uh, It's it's interesting in the Old Testament when uh, Moses, in the classic way, is greeting his father Jethro when Jethro comes to see him. And it says Moses greeted him, and then he gave the appropriate, he bowed and he kissed his father-in-law. And that's what some of you maybe need to do with your Uh, father-in-laws. But he bowed and kissed him, and so he's the inferior relating to the superior, his father-in-law. So it starts that way, in that classic fashion, with Mary greeting uh, Elizabeth, her superior but then, boom, everything changes. When the John leaps within her and Elizabeth bursts out and begins to speak of the blessedness of Mary. And so, immediately things are reversed. Mary is made the superior. She's made the one of great honor. She is the one who is blessed among all women. And so, the classic uh, approach here is just invaded uh, with this... Uh, leaping of John that interrupts what would happen. And this is uh, the first sign of the joy that just breaks in upon the scene. I mean, she just comes to say hello, greetings, and bam, burst forth the joy uh, from Elizabeth. And this leaping is his prophetic action. This is amazing. The little prophet has already begun to prophesy. <laughs> Because we read in, earlier in uh, last week in verses 14 and following that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And so here's the sign of the one filled with the Spirit when the mother of his Lord comes in, newly conceived uh, Lord, and he immediately leaps it's his way of proclaiming this indeed is the lord and then elizabeth you see gives voice to her sons leaping because it says she was filled by the holy spirit and so she is speaking on behalf of god this is god declaring uh, declaring in words what john is saying in his leaping you see that this indeed is the lord the messiah And so it says that he would be a forerunner and he would announce this one. And already he is announcing this one in his mother's womb. And so she declares uh, that he is my Lord. Amazing, amazing words. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? These are words that would only come from the Holy Spirit. So, that brings us to the first aspect of this joy. It is a submissive joy. When you have joy in this Messiah, you submit your life to Him. He is my Lord, acknowledging His lordship and kingship. And, of course, this is all the way through... Mary's statements as she magnifies the Lord, as she uh, looks to his sovereignty. And you can tell she submits to that mightiness and that sovereignty. Even uh, she herself in verse 38 says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And so joy in this Lord always means submission to this Lord. And in the New Testament, the lordship is always connected with the death, with the suffering. As I was using that portion in uh, one of our prayers in Philippians chapter 2, he did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out and became a servant, even to the point of death. And then Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He is always exalted as a part of and a result of his gracious, loving death. And so he is always the having-died-for-us Lord on the throne. And there is no other Lord. There's not a harsh Lord. There's a Lord with wounds that is on the throne. That's the only Lord that we have to do with. The Lord of heaven and earth demonstrates in His very wounds His graciousness toward us, His goodwill toward us. That's why it's all the more heinous that we would not submit to this One who has so demonstrated His love for us. We'll not put ourselves under the care of that One who died. That's the Lord who, in a sense, earns His Lordship. You might say, earns his, the motivation to submit to him or uses that as the motivation to submit to him. He is the one who has died, therefore he is exalted. And interestingly, in 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul talks about the Lord and how whether we live or die, uh, whether we're at home or whether uh, in the body or whether we're absent from the body, whatever it is, we want to be pleasing to our Lord. And even talks about the judgment seat. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of our Lord. He uses this language, but then in the midst of it he says, for it is the love of Christ that governs us. See, he talks about lordship and he talks about pleasing him and giving his whole life, no matter what it costs him, no matter what his condition, I will submit to him and what drives me to do this, the love of Christ governs me. She can never separate his lordship from his death and and his sacrifice for us. So this submission, this joy you see, this joy in his salvation naturally would say, oh, the, the wonder that I could put myself in the care of one who has sacrificed so much. Another fascinating thing about this joy is that Elizabeth, in her joy over Mary, apparently shows no jealousy whatsoever, does she? She has heard that she's the mother of a great man. He will be great, but he will not be anything like this man. And yet, there's no trace of jealousy. There's no threat here. There's no, well, yeah, but I want John to be for or this puts me in the shade. <clears throat> it's interesting how jealousy destroys joy. And it's amazing that we as believers can not realize, and many times we don't, The full riches that we have in Christ. And that's what she's rejoicing in. Rejoicing in this Lord that is being given to her. It doesn't matter to her how this Lord is coming. She's even counting it as a grace and a blessing that she should even be in the presence of the mother of this Lord. And that she could be drawn so near. She's not looking at what she doesn't have or what's better than hers. She's looking at what God has given her so graciously. And you see, if we were taken up, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 3 when they were arguing over, well, I like Paul or Corinth or I like Apollos or I like Cephas, Peter. You know, everyone's talking about their preacher and why he's better than the other preacher. And and then Paul ends the argument not maybe in their minds, but at least it should have ended the argument. He says, well, all of you have Paul. Paul is yours, and Cephas is yours, and Apollos is yours. And he said, hey, let's throw in some other things to boot. The world is yours. Life and death is yours. The present and the future is yours. All things are yours. Everything belongs to you. How how can you be worried about this or that thing that you don't have? And so... Redemption sets us free because we have so much in Him. We have all treasure in Him now and forever. We have the treasure of Christ in our day-to-day life that we could know Him, that we could begin to be like Him, that we could know His fellowship in all the things that we go through, that we could have the hope of being with Him forever, the hope of reigning with Him forever, the hope of perfect, perfect love and joy forever forever. And so, you see, any kind of jealousy is born out of an unbelief in the favor of God. If you're down because of what you don't have, then you don't believe in the favor of God at that point. You've lost sight of the rich favor of God when He's given you everything there is for a human being to have. And you can begin tasting that now, and you will have it in its fullness in the final day, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's born out of suspicion. It's born out of suspicion. But Elizabeth shows in her joy a pure love and a delight in her sister and rejoicing in the one who rejoices. Uh, she is welcoming the grace and goodness of God. So this joy submits itself to God. This joy spins itself and loves others in, in, its, in the wake of it. It, 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 it pours itself out out of the treasure that it recognizes that it has in Christ. And to drop back a verse in verse 38, it it sacrifices anything and everything in this joy. Uh, Mary, no doubt, understood something of what this meant when she submitted to this call that she would have this child. Because she was engaged and she was not married. And... Apparently, she went immediately before it was really known that she was pregnant. She spent three months with Elizabeth. And it could have been that it was found out while she was there. But more than likely, when she came back, she came back pregnant, of course. Obviously pregnant. And that's when we may pick it up in Matthew chapter 1 when Joseph, it was discovered that Mary was with child. But several have pointed out that when she embraced this, she knew it could mean alienation even from Joseph's family. It could mean alienation in her society. It could be a terrible burden for her at a terrible cost. And yet she submitted herself to whatever the Lord would have her do. And so we put ourselves in his hands because of the joy that we have in him We can let our life go. Uh, It's what Paul says there again when he, in the verse that follows, we are driven or governed by the love of Christ. He says, He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but we would live for Him who died for us. And so, in the joy that we have, we become more willing to sacrifice anything. And it's because of passion that we sacrifice. And that's why in our mission statement we say nurturing a joy for loving God and loving people. We will not sacrifice, I believe, without the joy that we have in our salvation. The joy that is expressed in this passage. It's stated in that parable that you're familiar with, some of you. In Matthew 13, uh, verses 43 through 45, he gives two parables. One is the uh, pearl of great price, but the other is the treasure in the field. And he says the kingdom of God is like a man. He's walking through a field and he finds a treasure. And then he goes and he sells everything he has in order to get the field so he can have that treasure. But what I love about that passage, it says, for joy over that treasure, he sells all that he has. So he's, he's like I was years ago. Uh, crazy I was. Uh, I collected coins. Coins, not coins. Um, have to concentrate to say it your way and not my way. Um, But I uh, collected coins, and I saw my my friend Philip, who later died uh, of cancer. Uh, Philip, I didn't know at the time this, but he was uh, the son of a PCA pastor in town, Um, and we became good friends. Well, he had come up with a three-cent piece. Well, I was new to the coin collecting world, and so i just never seen it. I didn't know there was such a thing as a three-cent piece. And I just couldn't believe that. I said, where did you get that? Well, you know, so-and-so I got it. I said, well, I'd love to trade you for it. And so I started. I I had a pretty decent collection of uh, Lincoln Head pennies starting about 9.09, you know, and running through the teens. I had a bunch of. So I start throwing out. What about this? 12. What about this 13 for that? No, no. I mean, what about this one? What about, I threw up four or five pennies and already I'm I'm way overboard, you know, because that three-cent piece really isn't worth these five or six pennies. But finally, I, I said, I just threw the whole book of pennies down. I wanted that three-cent piece so badly. I just threw my whole... I just spent lavishly in order to get it and didn't think a thing of it because I wanted it so badly. And that expresses probably even better, the Lord's lavish expenditure for drawing us to Himself. But then it expresses something of our joy and lavishly uh, throwing anything away in order that we may have Christ Himself. And so the joy that is expressed in this passage, the joy that Mary proclaims, the joy that Elizabeth proclaims... uh, the, the. there's poetry and music in this first two chapters of the birth of Christ. You have the poetry and music and uh, uh, and song of, of Elizabeth, then Mary, then Simeon, uh, then Zechariah, and then the angels. I mean, it's just song after song after song here. And it shows that when uh, we see this salvation, when we see this Christ and what He is and what He's doing for people, then we burst forth with joyful song. And that means that we give our lives to Him. It means that we pour out ourselves in love to others. It means that we begin to sacrifice joyfully. Singing, worshiping, praising, thanking people are people who submit and love and sacrifice. Isn't that a great combination? Praising, thanking, uh, confessing, glorifying people. People that glorify God and are caught up in the wonder of God. They're the people that truly sacrifice and submit and love. They go together. Glad worship and glad expenditure of self. And that's why we say, nurturing a joy, for loving God and loving people. So, I could, ask you, I could ask you this question. Even 10 minutes a day, are you caught up with the glory of God? Just ask just asking flat out. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I'll do about five or whatever. But I mean, seriously, for 10 minutes that you concentrate, one of the things we do on Tuesday mornings, and I invite all the men to join us at 6.30 on Tuesday mornings, but we have... And this isn't that long, but we have the first 20 minutes designated praise. And that's all we do for 20 minutes. And we have a passage of Scripture that we use as a a basis for the praise, trying to focus on whatever that passage says in in terms of praise and let that be our guide for praise. Some mornings, uh, it won't be the redemption as much as this is talking about, that, that I'll, I'll think, I'm going to focus on what God's done in the ocean, okay? <laughs> or what He's done with food, or what He's done in this area. That area. The, the possibilities are endless. But do you spend time stirring your heart up so that you have real emotional wonder and awe and joy in the presence of God? Do you? <laughs> I'm asking you. And I'm telling you, if you are not nurturing that praise and worship, if there's anything that we learn in these first two chapters of the initial revelation of Christ, it's that we must burst into song and our lives begin to show submission and sacrifice and love in the wake of that poetry and music that comes into our lives. But brothers and sisters, we have to nurture this in our lives. We will naturally become hardened we will naturally become closed off to the goodness and grace and power and glory of God. But that's what he wants to nurture in us. That's what he wants to bring about. So, Joy, and you would want me to say more briefly, uh, we talk about restoration. This passage especially in the Magnificat. And the word Magnificat is from the the Latin word, when my soul magnifies. And and the very first word in the Latin translation is Magnificat. Um, It talks so much about restoration. We need to get a little feel for the social situation as he begins in verse 5 in the narrative of this chapter, in the days of Herod. Now, that might not mean a lot to us, but... Herod's rule was very controversial, and it was resisted by uh, many of the Jews, of course. Uh, They did not like Herod's rule, and of course they despised the rule of Caesar Augustus, which is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1, Caesar Augustus, that the world should be registered. And this this is a little hint for the political tension that's going on. Uh, And so if you say something about uh, the... Uh, rule or the days of Herod, it, it might be like somebody saying, it was back in the late 60s and the early 70s, and we were we were embroiled in Vietnam. Okay, so there's a there's something going on. If you're on the college campus or many college campuses at that point, there's a lot of tension. There may be riots, there may be burnings, there may be marches, all kinds of things going on. And so it was in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So there's this idea of being ruled by foreign powers and it's interesting how much that's brought out in this passage and in the whole first two chapters of, of Luke. Also, when it mentions Caesar Augustus, he's the one of whom it is, was said repeatedly, he's the divine savior who has brought peace to the world. And so chapter 2 begins with Augustus, the divine Savior who brought peace to the world. And then the angelic announcement, here is the king who brings true peace to the earth. So it's in contrast to the political rule of the day. And salvation is mentioned in terms of the release from enemies. In verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate the mighty from their thrones, rulers. So something about His coming unseats rulers. In verse 74, in Zechariah's song, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And that would have a definite political, social reference. Or later, when it speaks of Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Or Anna, as it says of her, that... She was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, what do we we get from this? First, I want to say that this speaks at least this much of ultimate and final, complete redemption for this world. We can't lose that. And and immediately go to just, say, the spiritual application that it means that we who are sinful will be redeemed and set free. This has more than that to say. It's speaking about political overturning. It's, It's speaking about a full restoration of all things that this baby will bring about. And so in the first place, as we think about restoration, it's absolute and final and complete restoration. We read in Acts 3.21, He must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through His holy prophets. Or you recall what Paul says in Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When the children of God are raised up, and the final resurrection, and we are restored, then creation itself under our headship will be restored. All things will be restored. <clears throat> Colossians 1 says, through Christ, he's going to reconcile all things to himself. And in Ephesians 1, at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. And so, when there is not full restoration here and now, you and I must have the great hope overshadowing everything in our lives and all the confusion and horror of this world. There will be complete restoration one day. Our Lord Jesus will leave nothing undone. He is not unconcerned about the suffering of this world. He is not unconcerned about the oppression of His people. It does not mean if you go through tragedy, disease, and loss that he is not the sworn enemy of these things for the sake of his people. He is opposed to everything and anything that could do you harm. And he will finally remove it completely from you and from this world. Sometimes we lose track of that when we're submitting to His will. We think He almost likes doing this to us. We think that He really doesn't care about the things that happen. When He has an infinite hatred against anything that would do us harm, it's merely that His timing is not exactly what we would like at times. But one day, all things will be restored, and all the proud will be scattered, as He says. All the mighty will be torn from their thrones. All those who exalt themselves against God will be removed. And so there will be this final restoration of all things. But from this, we also need to understand that we are part of the beginning of that restoration. And that's what Alan was telling us about. We are part of his kingdom in which... Through our work and our love, we begin to have the effects of His kingdom spreading its deliverance and its healing and its restoring power. It's at work now in this world. You know, in the Roman days, uh, abandoned children, uh, men of course had the right to declare their own children not to live. And they would just abandon them on trash heaps. Who were the only people that were bringing those children into their homes? It was Christians. They were the only people who cared for the pagans. In fact, the pagans remarked, some of the pagan philosophers and, uh, this and, and political leaders to say, they love our children better than we do. That's what? That's the restoring work of the kingdom showing itself. When we have ladies working down at Pregnancy Lifeline and they are literally... Hundreds of children that are alive because of the work at Pregnancy Lifeline. That's the kingdom restoring, bringing about healing, bringing about a change in thinking, bringing about the restoration of families, bringing about the restoration of marriages, bringing about the restoration of prisoners behind bars. It's the kingdom. So the final restoration will come one day, but now is the breaking out of that restoration. The, the, the breaking out of the blessings and the restoration of the kingdom is already, but the kingdom in its final perfect blessing and restoration is not yet. So you hear that a lot, the already and the not yet. But we must believe in all of these statements that are made that have such a, Uh, earthy and tangible physical manifestation in this passage, we must be a part uh, of that as we proclaim the gospel and seek to do good in every way that we can. And that's why in the New Testament there's such a constant emphasis on good deeds. Constantly, constantly emphasizing showing love and good deeds to everyone around. What is that? It's the kingdom breaking out now in hope of the final restoration of all things on this earth, but in every way that we could bring about restoration. That's why we're mentoring boys and mainly little boys, but boys and girls, most of whom are in broken homes, right down the street, 25 mentors, 25 people praying for them, 10 other people going to uh, preach the gospel one time a week down there. Why is that? trying to bring the kingdom blessing and restoration to other lives. But then, of course, I close with just the, the glorious meaning for any and all who are helpless in sin. Certainly one final and central aspect of all of this is exalting those of humble estate filling the hungry with good things, verses 52 and 53. And central to that is the spiritual and moral relational restoration that he brings about. And this is illustrated later in the tax gatherer and the Pharisee, both appearing before God and the Pharisee touting all of his good deeds and the tax gatherer merely crying out, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. He's the one who humbles himself, the... The tax gatherer exalts himself, and interesting, Jesus says, This man is the one who is declared not guilty. The one who said, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Tax gatherers were terrible, selfish, abusive people. And yet he was crying out for mercy. The the Pharisee, you know, righteous on the outside, but full of sin on the inside, and he was pushing himself before God. But connecting with that, Jesus says, For he who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's, he later speaks of the sinful woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet with, with oil and, and weeps upon his feet and dries his feet with her own hair. And he speaks of her salvation and how she's forgiven much, And therefore, she loves much. All of Luke is about this idea that the humble and the broken and the lost and the helpless, these are the ones he's come to save. And the point is, everyone really is that broken and helpless and lost. And it is the grace of God that you would come to that conclusion, that you would see the reality of just how much you neglect God, just how little you really worship Him and love Him, just how little you make Him the center of everything that you do and think. And therefore, you have to cry out to Him, Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. But How welcoming, how glorious that this child is, is is given for the sake of the helpless, not for the people who have it together. But when you're at your worst, when you're most honest with yourself of all that you're not and haven't done, then you come and embrace this one. He is made for the helpless, he is given for the helpless. And so we see him healing dead people. We see him healing lepers. We see him healing a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, healing a paralytic. These are pictures of our own helplessness. We must have him heal us. We must have his forgiveness as he died on the cross for our sake. We must have his spirit that renews us and transforms us. How glorious! There's where joy is born. There's where restoration begins. With the helpless cry, Lord, have mercy upon me. Will you not in this season of all times, will you not rejoice in this full restoration? Will you not rejoice in this Lord that would take you and do everything for you? Will you not helplessly give yourself up into his hands? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, you lift up the humble and you fill the hungry with good things. We pray, strike deep into our hearts, Lord. Cause us to to be undone. Cause us to see that we have nothing, but you come to bring us everything. Lord, remove our self-righteousness. Remove our independence. Remove our suspicion. Remove anything that would separate us, Lord, from a helpless dependence upon your mercy and grace and the joy that will flood us, the joy that will sustain us, the joy that we can taste, sometimes barely, sometimes in floods. But Lord, that joy of knowing the God that made us and knowing the love that has sacrificed his own son for us. Bless us, Lord. Save us, Lord. For your
0: name's sake, amen.
1: Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please
2: visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
0: Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rays. Shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of.